Ladies and gentlemen, look at the carrots, look at the facets, look at the sparkle. Yes, it's Raven Bond roaring into the 1970s to the amazing tones of Shirley Bassey. And yes, it is. Diamonds, Diamonds are, forever. are forever. I wonder if they that will work in time I with the music. But uh, it's becoming a bit of a weekly challenge for me now to sync it all up. Sinking always psychologically and spiritually with me on a bond level is this man, Stuart Light. <laughs> I haven't I haven't earned a, a middle a middle uh, title yet. I was trying to think of a sobriquet like you know yeah. Stuart the Gun Late or uh, Stuart Diamond Collar Late or something. I was trying to think of something and my brain blanked out. So if you can fill in that gap, listeners, Stuart something something late. All in. He needs a, a nickname, a mob name. <laughs> do do I need a nickname? Of... I guess we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Have you had any nicknames in your life? Your name sort of initial and last name spells out Slate, which is that's, pretty cool. I mean, that's not as a nickname. That's not bad. I'll, I'll take that one. Yeah. If I hadn't introduced myself, I am Natalie Bohensky. And this is Raven Bond. Uh, I don't have any memorable nicknames apart from various ones my father has given me over the years. What do you mean you and don't I have any uh, good nicknames? You're, you're Girl Clumsy, the mother of kittens. Well, that's true. Hey, can I tell you something I discovered in the past week? Please do. So I am clumsy and I've been getting physio the last month or so on my knee and my ankle and I'm constantly getting out of alignment and, and various joints, you know, don't work. And I'd like to say it's because I'm getting older, but the truth of the matter is I've had dodgy knees and ankles my whole life. So maybe it's getting worse. It just feels like normal to me. But my physio said that because I'm, I'm hypermobile, I have hypermobility. So double jointed essentially. So I have Mm. wacky joints and she said, Oh, clumsiness. That's just related to your hypermobility. And I said, what? And there is a link between people with hypermobility, double jointedness and clumsiness because there's something called joint I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly prior perception I think right. where your brain knows where your limbs are in space where your body is in space so yes. you might put your hands behind you you can't see them but your body still knows where they are now in people with hypermobility that can be interrupted that signal so my clumsiness might not just be because I'm a flailing fool but because of science. How cool is that? I mean, that is cool. A medical reason for my complete physical awkwardness and disgrace. <laughs> and and look, that was enough to cheer me up uh, for a day in isolation, you know, finding out that, uh, look, I'm always going to be clumsy because of science. I can't cure this shit. So I will never be a graceful movie star or a Bond girl, which is sad, uh, because of my <laughs> innate awkwardness. <laughs> uh, but yes mother of kittens i also gave myself that nickname but thanks to everyone who continues to use it i very much appreciate it <laughs> we are talking diamonds are forever we sure are this is the last sean connery appearance as james bond the last canon sean the last canon yes eon productions version and it is the 
I guess, end of an era somewhat, although in in my recap of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I'm sort of arguing that that was kind of the end of an era and Diamonds Are Forever is sort of this transition film into what will become a decade of really over-the-top, kind of (laughs) high-camp, super-fun ridiculousness. And I think reading about... I could easily see Roger Moore in this film. Oh, you can? Yeah, definitely. Ah, I, I could easily see Roger Moore in this film. I have never pictured that, but I think you're right. It definitely has that touch of it has silliness. has that feeling of, of the 70s Bond going forward. So, you know, obviously Roger Moore will take over in the next one, not to give spoilers for a, <laughs> a 40-year-old movie. Yeah. But, uh, you know. Who will it be? That, who will it be, Stu? Who will it be? Well, <laughs> we've got a short list of actors. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's um I feel like this you you're absolutely right. This feels like a transitional film. I feel like they obviously got Connery back for one last ride, but this could easily have been a, a Roger Moore film. Like the tone of it. Whereas I can't picture him in the earlier Conneries, but I can definitely picture him here. So it's interesting why Connery came back, and I've been I've been reading up on this. Just to close out my my point before, a lot of people reading up on this film and a lot of people's reviews both at the time and then now, there seems to have been a swap between On Her Majesty's Secret Service and, and Diamonds Are Forever, whereas at the time, On Her Majesty's Secret Service got a bit of like, uh, whereas Diamonds Are Forever was a bit, hooray, it's back to fun. And <laughs> over time, those have crossed back. So people now, as we were discussing with Nick last week, people now look back at On Her Majesty's Secret Service and go, wow, we really didn't give that the time that it probably deserved or the credit it deserved, whereas Diamonds Are Forever now, and I was surprised to read this, comes way down in a lot of lists of, uh, you know, Bond films. People- I have seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. but Well, <laughs> sure we'll get into that but I just wanted to say at the outset I was reading up on why Sean Connery came back and obviously George Lazenby as we discussed last week had said nah I'm done easy riders coming the future is now Bond is uh, outdated and obsolete so stuff you and that movie hadn't performed as well it still did really well relative to other movies but relative to other Bond films it hadn't performed as well and the producers, Harry Saltzman and Albert Broccoli, were worried that having to cast another unknown actor might see another sort of middling result like that. And they did go through a few people, but then eventually the head of United Artists, the studio, said, look, get Connery back. Money is no objection. Just get him back. Yeah. And Connery was barely talking to the producers, so I'm not sure how it was negotiated. Yeah, absolutely. People and lawyers, I imagine. But he said, I'll do it for £1.25 million. <laughs> now, to put that in perspective, Dr. No was shot for £1 million One in million total. Yes. And I think Connery was paid like £17,000 or something like that. Yeah, he was so paid of, a, a base actor's salary. Yeah, so one of his big issues with the Bond franchise was he'd gotten sick of the character. He he kind of got sick that people recognised him as Bond and thought that was all he could do. And he, you know, was and is a better actor than Bond, you know, to put that into quotation marks because <laughs> I hate this idea. that And pe- people kind of get over it eventually and, and recognise that the character they become known as is actually quite a, you know, it's a positive thing. It's usually a gift. Exactly. You can milk that sucker at conventions for all it was worth, but I imagine (laughs) that there probably weren't that many conventions back in 1970. 
So he had become dissatisfied and had stepped away, but he said, I'll do it for £1.25 million plus, I think, 12% of the domestic gross, plus he got two films financed that he wanted to do, like pet passion projects of his. Oh, wow. Okay. He got two. So one of them got made and one of them didn't because the one that didn't get made was going to be a production of Macbeth uh, and apologies for any superstitious theatrical types. <laughs> I will do the requisite running around the, the building, swearing, <laughs> dancing thing yes. you're supposed to do. But he wanted to do an all Scottish production of Macbeth with him in the titular role. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, Roman Polanski had just gone into production on his version of Macbeth, which you'll know because it's the one where everyone's basically naked. <laughs> Certainly all the female characters are, all the witches, Lady Macbeth, just... The historical accuracy. Yeah. Well, because obviously Scotland is a place where you're very comfortable being naked all the time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, temperature-wise, <laughs> it's balmy. So he didn't get that one made, but they had promised that you know, he would get all this stuff. So he made a fortune. Now, what he did with that £1.25 million is he set up the Scottish International Education Trust. So he set that up with the entire £1.25 million. Oh, wow. Okay. And this was a trust to help Scottish, I think initially actor types or performers, but it's sort of broader to anyone who wanted sort of further education where Mm. they could get funding from within Scotland so they wouldn't have to sort of leave and try and further their Right, okay. Do that in Scotland because he felt that he didn't get a big education himself and he got a hand up at certain points in his life, so he wanted to give back. So I just thought that was pretty cool to mention. Sean Connery as a man has certain complications if you (laughs) read into it, like everyone in that era particularly. But he, yeah, did this amazing thing and he did this film, you know, and it's pretty easy for him to do, I imagine. It was like slipping on an old suit. But that was a positive outcome of it. So, yeah. It's like slipping on an old hairpiece. Yes. Well, do we want to start with our one-minute challenge then? You can start because I'm interested to hear what stood out to you about this film. This is one you'd seen before, yeah, because I know with – Yes, so so with with many of these previous ones, I've seen them once or twice. We're now getting into the territory where I've seen these films quite a few times, but when I was much younger. When I was a kid, this was one of my favourite films. Like, I definitely, you know, had seen... It was on TV, I think, and I'd seen it. I don't think it was my first Bond film. I think... I think Live and Let Die was my first Bond film. Cool. Well, that's think, next week. Which, which is not a bad, not a bad first Bond film. Uh, yeah. So we might talk about that then. But I definitely had seen this on the TV. They were probably doing yeah. like a marathon or something. And it's one of those ones that gets played a lot. Well, this um, is what I wanted to frame our discussion with this week is the idea that, and it struck me while I was watching it again, that there are so many parts in this movie where I feel like if you're just a random going, what's that Bond film where he does this? Or yeah. what's the one where he does this? Like nine times out of ten, it's probably Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> like, there's just so many things in this film that are just kind of so memorable. Well, to the point where I had thought, and we'll get to the, the minute challenge in a second, but like I, I remembered that showdown with the weird vat of clay stuff. Yeah. I remembered that being the the climax of the movie. Right? <laughs> like, like weirdly, I, I remembered that being like part of the final showdown. And I'm like, I don't know why I thought that was like that, but for some reason that it got twisted around in my head. And I've seen this movie as an adult. I don't know why this that, that got twisted around in my head. I was like, oh, geez, that's that's happening now. This is before the credits. And that probably the other part that I could frame it towards is possibly where the film suffers a bit is a bit of a lack of cohesion through a lot of its elements. 
And so it's got all these set pieces, but maybe why you can't remember them in the right order or something or why you get this yeah, The connective tissue where... isn't quite there. That's right. It's like my hypermobility. <laughs> it's a little bit, you know, the brain doesn't know what the limbs are doing. Absolutely. Oh, my God. That makes so brought, much sense. We've brought it full circle around just minutes into recording, Stu. So let's, clumsy the let's, movie. let's end it there. And sure. uh... Job done. <laughs> Job done. Well done, everyone. This one went for about 10 minutes. <laughs> well, well, kick us off with your one-minute challenge. Yes. Okay, right. So, I mean, the first thing up the top, uh, which we've talked about, is Connery's back. Hooray. And so is oh, his hairpiece. Exact same thing. Connery's back. Yeah. <laughs> A very visible hairpiece this time around from uh, our man, Sean, who has, who has aged visibly between films. So, he was last filmed as Bond, like, 66, early 67, because uh, You Only Live Twice came out, I think, mid-67. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's and been... And then 69 is... Yeah, I guess. Three or four years. In that time, he's gone from his mid to late 30s to his early 40s. So I guess, you know, you, you can expect a bit of a bit of ageing <laughs> over that period. I know I am. But uh, it's, it's definitely... <laughs> um, he's visibly an, a more grizzled Bond, which I guess, you know, isn't, isn't terrible. We're getting that with the Daniel Craig version at the moment. Um, we're getting a nice grizzled Bond, which is always yeah. good. And he's 10 years older. Yes. Well, I mean, he looks amazing. He's he's this amazing. Is, this is modern Hollywood. Like, you don't age like you used to. No. You know? They have the technology to keep you in a relatively suspended state of animation. Yeah. Talking about iron lungs, they just keep you in a bubble. <laughs> keep you the most perfect, organic, calorifically prepared uber foods, pumpy full of exercise and facial treatments and stem cells from the finest orphans that's right pure mountain spring water strained through the hearts of virgins um, <laughs> and whenever gwyneth paltrow was selling yeah people used to really and we've commented on a few of the films where people you go oh that person was 32 and you're like wow they looked like they were 70 so <laughs> it's like when you see mug shots of women uh, and men too i suppose from the late 1800s early 1900s once yes. photographic yeah. mug shots become a thing and you look back and they're like this is crime boss you know sally mcdougall she, she was, was 19 a- years old yeah exactly <laughs> she's you know she's this grizzled old woman <laughs> Mother of five uh, <laughs> and crime queen, Sally McDougall, in this photo, is pictured here at 19 years old. And you're like, what? <laughs> Get some ponds onto you. Get down yes, to the ponds but, institute. But grizzled or not, I'm very glad to have him back because he's the original and best. Uh, so there he is. Um, um, the second uh, item on my list was... Uh, are you thinking what I'm thinking, Mr. Wint? I think I am, Mr. Kidd. It's murder and outdated stereotypes time. What? <laughs> that that was a long walk for no for no payoff. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> murder in outdated stereotypes. And outdated stereotypes time. Oh, um, you're referring to the fact that they're a gay couple. Yes, yes, I am. Okay, well, so uh, I it's have a that on my bit... list, like Bond's first gay assassin couple. <laughs> <laughs> but not the last. I'm trying to think of this. <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to put like Bond's first gay couple, but then I was like, I don't know if that would be actually accurate because... Well, I mean, you know, I mean, the Pussy Galore 
I assume is in a relationship with several. She's in some weird polyamorous uh, cult. Yes. With her, with her flying circus. And then in on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Bond was like pretending to be gay. No, I'm not saying that's the same thing, but I'm just saying that I don't. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say that this was the first time homosexuality had been brought up or included in the Bond films. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and the thing is, is I can't doing a cursory search. I'm sure this stuff exists, but doing a cursory search on this film, I couldn't see any major kind of critiques of that and I I never really can I say as a kid and I have always had a very bad gaydar (laughs) I didn't pick up on this for the longest time no neither did I I never I never sort of got it I always just thought they were like weird and kooky yeah they're like creepy assassins Mm. who were like this this team you know they're a two-man assassin team and they obviously work very closely together but I didn't yeah, I, I suppose now when you rewatch and you go, oh, they're literally holding hands in the first scene. That yes. They're, that they yeah, yeah. And he gets very, he gets very jealous. I, I can't remember which one's which, but um. Mr. Wint is Bruce Glover with the hair. Right. Okay. Then, so, so um, well, in that case, uh, Mr. Wint gets very jealous when Mr. Kidd says that uh, Tiffany Case is pretty for a lady. For a lady, um, yes. He, he gets all pissy Where's when he's putting on his his perfume. Yes, he puts on perfume that Bond describes as he smells like a tart's nightgown. <laughs> Something like that. I just love the fact he uses the word tart. I just, yes. Can we bring tart back? I just, I love tart as a slur. It's just, I don't know, something about it is so wholesome. I, I'm probably offending people. It's like, oh, you're tart. <laughs> I say that you should definitely do it, Natalie. You need to reclaim it. I don't know. It's just like, it, it, it sort of was the signifier, I guess, for too much makeup, whatever that means to you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I guess. I mean, what would, they, what would they even call that now? Well, you call it Instagram is what you call it. <laughs> like, there's no such thing anymore as too much makeup because makeup's been reclaimed as, you know, artistry. Sure, yeah. You can't just kind of be a tart wearing too much blush and lipstick anymore. It's like, oh, no, she's an Instagram influencer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being mean. I'm being truthful. No, like that's, that's a factual statement of what, what something happens. Yeah. Just go onto Instagram and search hashtag beauty, hashtag makeup or something, and you'll see <laughs> so many fake eyelashes. But you wouldn't call any of them tarty. Like, well, apart from Tarty Westbrook, which is a very, very funny beauty YouTube reference, Stu. And if only if only you knew that, you would be laughing hysterically right now. Absolutely. But uh, <laughs> hello to the, like maybe two people who get that joke. But they'll laugh. They'll laugh a lot. Yeah, so, but Tarte seemed to have this slight loose morals, too much makeup, maybe a bit quick to drink. And all of those qualities are admired in women these days. So, you know, no, absolutely, morals, yeah. lots of makeup, loose morals, have a bit to drink. Sure. You're just a badass. You're not a tart anymore. <laughs> it's one of these fabulous words that doesn't really have a male equivalent, you know? Like slut doesn't really have a male equivalent. Neither does tart. But tart is less sexual. I, I feel like in all those cases, we should just start using them for men anyway. Yes. Just, just to sort of take the gendered sort of thing out of it. Yeah. it Just, just start calling men up. tarts. Because some men are tarts. Oh, yeah. We have a mutual <laughs> friend who I won't name, uh, but we used to work with, who commonly refers to himself as a slut. Oh, sure. But, you know, it, to me, it always seems like it's a bit edgy. And he would go, no, it's not cool. I'm, I was just a massive slut. And I'm like, yeah, but you still sound cool. I just don't know if I sound as cool. Anyway. So, yeah, so Mr. We... Winter, Mr. Kid, I mean, like, they are, I guess, I mean, like, not not the most not... problematic thing ever. But... They're not camp. They're not Oh, camp. they're pretty camp. 
<laughs> but Mr. Put- Mr. Um, Putter Smith, who plays uh, Mr. Kid, he's like a famous jazz musician and he mm. didn't really act a lot, but for some reason they convinced him to come and be in this film. And he's not camp, like he's barely got a personality. He just sort of plods along going, yeah, oh, but yes. At, at one point they, they literally have them hold hands and skip off and then – at, like towards the end, Bond is. Are you talking about the bomb between the legs? The, the bomb between the legs. And the, uh, he's like, yeah. Ooh! And it's like, oh, really? Okay. It's weird. It is weird. It's a weird moment. I was but like, he's oh, okay. A weird guy. <laughs> like he's a weird guy beyond. He is a weird guy. guy. That's true. He, that's true. I mean, he's Crispin Glover's dad, so yes. which both... you can absolutely tell. It's like oh, Crispin God. Glover. Have we yeah. checked that it's not actually Crispin Glover? Like no. the Crispin Glover is not some ageless vampire creature. Yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> we haven't ruled that out. It is uncanny. They're very, very strong family resemblance. But yeah, I feel like there's an edge. And again, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I feel like there's this weird creepiness to them that's not about them being gay. No, that's like, true. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously like meant to be creepy in the sense that they're killers. Yes. Um, and it's not it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's it's worth noting just to mention oh, it. For sure, uh, I definitely had that on my list of yes. things to note about this film. And do you know? Did you notice that? One of the things that I think mentioning before about a bit of a lack of cohesion is we kind of assume that they're Blofeld's guys. Yes. Well, I was going to mention this. Yeah, that they they're weirdly disconnected from everything that happens in the film, even though they're sort of doing the cleanup work and they incite several of the incidents that happen. Yeah. They still feel disconnected from things. So and, and you're right, they're obviously Blofeld's henchmen, except... But you never see him talking to them at all. No, like, he never, never gives them once. orders, they never report back, they're never in a scene together. Yeah, they're sort of these agents of chaos on the outskirts of the main plot who... Yeah, that, that element to them I actually really like. I like the idea of just this two-man act just sort of yeah. existing on the periphery of this Bond plot. Everywhere Bond goes, they're always there before him. Yeah, they're, like they're one step ahead of him the whole time. They somehow are able to follow the trail, I guess because they know it better. But the thing is, is that the smuggling, I guess just to go through the plot, so Diamond's are going missing. I can't remember who that guy up was, the one who M and Bond have the meeting with. Some kind of diamond expert, treasury, something like that. They reckon reckon they're going to be dumped on the market to depress prices or stockpiling for some other reason. And that's why they get Bond to investigate. Little do they know. Little do they know that they're all being smuggled into America and their end goal is Blofeld, who's building a giant diamond laser. Building a giant space laser, Natalie, is what he's building. To hold the world hostage. Uh, Amazing. Love a good space laser. It's so great. It's just really good. And then they do a similar thing in Die Another Day. Yeah, yeah. Which was <laughs> roughly based on the book of Moonraker, which is totally dissimilar to the film. Makes me wonder if they maybe took a little bit from Moonraker for this one as well. I'll get to the script in a bit. But what I was going to say is that obviously all of these diamonds are being smuggled through and ending up at Blofeld, and this is the last lot of them or something like that because Wint and Kidd are kind of cleaning up every step of the way. Yes, they're, they're, they're getting rid of the, the entire chain. Yes, so one assumes 
the final plan, as Bond has a knack of doing, turning up right as the final plan is going into implementation. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's absolutely it. Um, which I get because I've seen the movie quite a few times, but I can understand someone who's watching this for the first time saying, "Well, hang on, how? Who are they? And and why are they doing all this? Like, like it is not immediately clear. It makes sense in hindsight, but it's not something that makes clear in the moment. You're like, what? What are they doing? Why are they and, doing this? Yeah. And what I love is this that thing that you know the first guy they kill that you see kill is that South African dentist. Yes. And they put a scorpion down the back of his shirt. Sure. Like that's so great. I mean, that is. <laughs> that, that's know, spy so, movie 101. No, but the fact that they're looking at the scorpion and going nature's best killer. Yes. Oh, it's always good to learn from the professionals. And then they hand the guy the diamonds, put a scorpion down the back of his shirt, take the diamonds back. Now that kills him. He's dead. Mm. They hide his body. Later, when Bond is, Bond is gassed by Blofeld, skipping ahead, spoilers, Bond is put in an elevator and there's a lovely moment where he ducks onto the edges of the elevator. Yes, I, I love I love by this point he's anticipating and, and like Blofeld, they're, they're doing this little dance. There. He's like, it's a perfectly normal elevator, 007. You just get on. Yes. Like, there's, I'm not tricking you. I'm not doing anything. Oh, crazy Blofeld over here. I'm not going to yeah. trick you. <laughs> And he's like, oh, you're trying to trick me, though. And then it fills with poison gas. Now, first question, why wasn't it just totally poisonous and kill him with the gas? Yes. It's it's not. It's just a knockout gas. So then Winton Kid take his unconscious body, put it in a pipe in a construction site, which is then laid the next day, fortunately, and then Bond wakes up at some time after that to discover he's been buried alive. Why didn't they just shoot him? (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Why why wasn't it poison gas? Why didn't they just shoot him? Like like they want him dead. It is one of the most implausible death traps that I think that the series ever has ever done. But I mean it is fun the way he gets out of it. Oh sure, yeah. The repair guys open the hatch and he's like, I'm sorry, I was walking my rat and seemed to have lost my way. <laughs> That is good. Uh, and the other one, which is when they're at the funeral home. Yes, yeah, yeah. Winton Kid knock him out and put him in the a coffin and send him into the oven and there's no way he's getting out of that and i remember as a kid being terrified by that music the the choral music that plays yes. as he goes into the oven that like it's terrifying really scary and the only way he survives that is because they realize the diamonds are fake and open it up and go hey give us the diamonds and then he just pops out like nothing's happened well yeah i love that like i mean do they have guns what's going on <laughs> like they were going to kill him and like fair enough, like they were they were going to kill him in a way that was going to leave no trace. Like that's great. Yeah. But then they're like, oh, hang on, these diamonds are fake. We get him out of there quickly and make see if he knows where the diamonds are. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, if you want to know, uh, I'll just go. Ha ha ha. I'll be at this casino. <laughs> get a gun. Yeah. Shoot him in the leg. Yeah. Like do <laughs> like torture it out of him for God's sake. What kind of henchman are you? <laughs> Well, they're not. They're just simple funeral parlor owners, particularly <laughs> what is it? His name is Morton Slumber. <laughs> like yes, his last yes. name is Slumber, the guy yeah. who runs the Slumber Funeral Parlor. Absolutely. <laughs> like that's some I mean, that's great. I, I have no complaints about that whatsoever. He had um, a choice. When he left college, he had a choice. He could either go into the funeral home business or open a um like a bed. Yes, <laughs> store, exactly. A mattress <laughs> store. <laughs> With a name like that, he only had two choices. That's it. But, yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of wacky escapes for Bond in this film. As I understand, there are in the novel as well. And the novel does, again, differ from the book because, of course, Blofeld is not in the novel. 
this was an earlier Bond book where Blofeld hadn't been introduced. Oh, okay, right. I always lose track of where all this was because, yeah, they're, they're vastly oh, out of order for the movies. Me too. They, they all get mangled up a bit. But, yeah, so they, they took, I think I was reading one quote that said, because they got Tom Mankiewicz in to write or to kind of freshen up. Richard Maubaum had written an early treatment of the script and then they got Tom Mankiewicz in because they are like, oh, we need an American <laughs> because so much of it takes place in America, but we sure. also want someone who will understand sort of Britishness and make sure that there's still that Britishness about it. Yes. And he apparently was he'd written for Broadway or, or the West End or something. So he had a, you know, he was hired for two weeks to do a scrub up of the script and then they kept him on. And he said that maybe about 45 minutes of the film can be traced back to the novel. And certain characters like Tiffany Case was in the novel and Mr. Winter and Mr. Kidd were in the novel. Shady Tree was in the novel, but not, I think, as the old <laughs> decrepit stand-up. Yes. <laughs> but then they got rid of the main villains who were these criminal brothers called the Spangs, S-P-A-N-G, um, right. Spang brothers or something, and there was this whole other... <laughs> other plot so right and, and replace them with mr winter mr kid or, the, or mr winter mr kid were already in there they were already in there no it was blofeld who became the big the big dad. oh right okay yes yeah. okay yeah sure well that makes sense I mean, and, like, like he's, yeah. and how about this sorry yes. i'll let you continue the script was rewritten to include the whole willard white and blofeld posing as willard white this sort of reclusive millionaire billionaire character mm -hmm. played by jimmy dean in the movie who was like a singer he was like a Vegas singer or something, and he wasn't much of an actor, but they got him in to play this character. <laughs> but the reason that that is in there is because Albert Broccoli was friends with Howard Hughes, famous recluse. Oh, like actually friends with Howard Hughes. Actually friends with Howard Hughes, who was in his, you know, dotage at that point. You know, he would have been in his 70s, 60, mm. late 60s, Yeah, 70s. I was going to say. And he allowed them to film. I think one of the properties they film at was one of his hotels. And he was, you know, reclusive. And Albert Broccoli had a dream that his friend Howard Hughes was replaced by an imposter. <laughs> and how would anyone know? And he right. really liked that dream so much, he told them to put it in the script for the movie. <laughs> so that's why that whole subplot feels relatively tacked on and, and not engaged with the rest of the plot. It was based on a dream. Sure. I'm just saying I've had wacky dreams. <laughs> so maybe one of them could be a Bond film. Sure. Uh, but I just love that little bit of trivia. Like he that he had that dream and went, oh, that would be cool. And to be honest, I kind of think it is cool. Like It's a cool know, idea, yeah. Using the cover of an existing millionaire's empire to carry out nefarious world domination plans. Yes. And the other thing you notice about this film is that Spectre is not mentioned. It's just Blofeld. Yes. There's no number one and number two and all that sort of nonsense in this one. There's no there's no murder chairs. No, it's just Blofeld and his body doubles. Mm. <laughs> Which I imagine uh, is how he wanted it all, all along. Well, weirdly enough, I was reading too that the in the book, there's actually a whole section set at a spa retreat in America somewhere. Um, sorry, I have a cat trying to join in on the uh, podcast. Yeah, I read that there was actually a section of the book set in a spa resort beauty treatment type place. Mm. And they were renowned for their mud baths and treatments. Right, okay. So I think maybe they took that element from the novel and threw it in as that pre-credit sequence. <laughs> 
and went, well, clearly if you're going to be carrying out massively intrusive facial reconstruction surgery, you need to submerge the person undergoing the surgery totally in mud. Sure. Like they put that guy totally in mud. There's no straw there that I could see. But he did think to bring a revolver with him. He, he still had a gun and yeah. he was able to hear somehow, even though he was submerged in mud, he was able to hear Bond come in. <laughs> I'm actually not entirely sure. Is that meant to be some sort of science fiction-y, like, rejuvenation bath or something? Or, or like, what? Like, maybe a preparatory treatment? Because he wasn't Bond gets the hose and hoses off his face, and it's not yeah. Blofeld. And Blofeld then comes in to go, oh, yes, he's go- he was going to become me. But uh, mud? I don't... <laughs> yes, it's very strange. Is it an antiseptic? Is it a preparatory treatment? In what way? It's a way? very weird sequence. I'm not sure how it relates to the to the plastic surgery. And that's why I think maybe they took that element from the, you know, spa scene in the book and went, oh, well, this has got the spa scene. This will keep people happy. <laughs> Here's the mud bath. All the fans of the, of the Bond novels by this point. Yeah, that's right. They're the, they're the ones who are kicking up a stink. Yes. It was the Gamergate of its day. <laughs> um, anyway, back to your minute challenge. Or where yes, well, I don't, yeah, a couple more, just a couple more things. Uh, I wrote, I just wrote down uh, Tiffany Case and Plenty O'Toole uh, in, in brackets. This movie was very formative for young Stu. Really? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. I'm very, very into both of these Bond girls. They are great. Really? Yeah. Oh, yes. My goodness, yes. My goodness, wow. yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I do. <laughs> for, for very obvious reasons. But also, you know, I, I, I actually really like Tiffany Case as a Bond girl. I think she's she's one of the better ones. I think she's actually really interesting. But also, like, both of them 100% my thing. <laughs> so <laughs> There you go. Because the thing is, of course, is particularly Tiffany Case, she's the first American Bond girl. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I'm not sure whether I was responding to that directly. but Well, I think you might have been responding to the fact that in the first scene where we meet her, mm. she's wearing the most incredibly low-cut pair she of She may underwear. actually be basically naked, yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Definitely part of it. She turns around to examine Bond's fingerprint, and, of course, he's wearing the fake thumbprint to look like Peter Franks. And she (laughs) – and she you can just see her ass crack, like two inches ass crack. absolutely. Because her pants are so small and they're so sheer. In that sort of early 70s sort of style. Yeah, just – Yeah, just insane, the costumes in this movie for the the, female characters. I know we we talked in the last movie about, like, Diana Rigg having a very, like, low cut, like like that centre cut uh, dress on. But like Tiffany Case and Plenty O'Toole, their entire screen time is either naked or in a dress that is just <laughs> just two pieces of fabric covering their their nipples. That's it. Yeah. Like there it's was just... a lot of very clingy fabric. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, <laughs> a lot of bright colours. Well, to the point where I mean, like like when uh, you know when uh, we see Plenty O'Toole dead later in the movie in the in the pool, it's just a see-through shirt. Yes, like, but it is just... floaty. It is floaty. Um, it is you know, floaty. There's a lot of fabric there. And actually, I was reading up on that. She uh, nearly drowned. Filming I'm sure she did. <laughs> These are the sorts of movies where an underwater shot like that, that person definitely nearly drowned. Plenty of tour was Lana Wood, who I believe was Natalie Wood's younger sister. Apparently, she and Connery had a thing while filming as well. Oh, okay. According to Wikipedia, I'm just, you know, citing my sources there. But her feet were actually tied to the block at the bottom of the pool. Oh, damn it. Why would they, they do that? Well, because they wanted the effect of her being, you know, tied to the bottom of a pool. 
So the idea is that that she was put in the pool just to the tip of her nose, so she would drown incredibly slowly. Like that's the that's the point. Like right, you know, it would take her a long time to drown. So they wanted to have they they put a rope across the pool so she could hold herself up, uh, haul herself up, and take breaths during takes. So her feet would be attached, but she was actually s- sort of leaning on this rope and and breathing comfortably. But at one point, something happened with the rope. It was taken out it wasn't replaced um after the take and she was there for a few moments just slowly taking in some water (laughs) but she was a professional diver or she sorry she was a certified diver so she had underwater training so she was right okay she didn't panic but she kind of i guess managed to get someone's attention and they went hey how about our actor there (laughs) maybe we should (laughs) let her breathe (laughs) she said it got close to being a bit frightening yeah jesus Fun times. But, yeah, that Plenty O'Toole, oh, I'm Plenty, but of course. <laughs> but of course you are. Plenty O'Toole. Named, <laughs> named after, after your, your father, father perhaps. perhaps. Like, I never <laughs> got that for years, but when I did, it was pretty fun. It's great. It's a great line. It's a, it's a it's an iconic line in many ways. Yeah. She's no. definitely one of the more ridiculously named Bond girls, and she the is. fact that the movie calls that out helps that along quite a bit. And do you know that every time I watch this film, I'm always surprised that she dies because I have such an endearing memory of her being thrown out of the hotel room when she's you know planning to mack on with Bond. Yeah. It's just in her pants, and these henchmen turn up and they throw her out. And she's falling out of the window going, I've got friends in this town! <laughs> yeah, which is a great exit for a and character. That would be wonderful. And the pool and Bond says, excellent shot. And the guy, a henchman guy goes, I didn't know there was a pool there. <laughs> and so, then later they drown her in a pool because they think she's Tiffany Case. Um, yeah, I think which I assume Winton Kidd did. Yes, I believe yeah. it's supposed to be them. Yeah, it makes sense given it was. You know, but surely, I mean, didn't they know? That, that's a weird moment that because it's like I, I never got why they killed her it's, because apparently she came around. Surely they knew what Tiffany looked like. They'd been following them for a while. So. Yeah, I suppose Tiffany wore wigs. Yeah, well, I guess. So it's not really clear, like, because Bond turns up at the place where there's the pool. It's supposed to be apparently Tiffany's house, but since when did she have a house in Vegas? Like, what? Yeah, exactly. It's never, it's never really explained, ex- apart from them saying, "Oh, they turned up here looking for you." And I guess, I mean, sure, like, like the movie gives you that much. Like, they're like, "Okay, that's what they happened." And yeah, it's now just she's this, dead. It's just this one-off scene, and it's not explained exactly where yeah. that house is. But I do think. Another bit of trivia that I read is that that house was Kirk Douglas's house. Oh, right. Okay. They used Kirk Douglas's house, had a house in Vegas or something, and they used for a bit of filming. And I think it's that house. So there you go. Right. Michael okay. Douglas probably had nice swimming fun times in that very same. <laughs> Good for him. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, like, like, yeah. So I'm, I'm big fan of both of these Bond girls. They're great. And then also <laughs> um, the final thing on my list was uh, Moon Buggy. Moon Buggy oh! Chase. That was my second thing on my list. Absolutely. Um, Connery's back and then moon buggy. Yeah, pretty much the moon buggy is why I can see Roger. I can absolutely see Roger Moore driving that moon buggy. Yeah. That is such a Roger Moore Bond thing, is driving a moon buggy around. Yeah, and um, apparently it was based on moon buggy designs, but they were like, oh, it doesn't look stupid enough. So they added all the, like, spinning and rotating shit. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, there's all sorts of things that, like, spin and, and twist around, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have been on the actual thing. but I suppose it's a space labs thing. That's That facility is a space lab. Yes, yes, but exactly. But they're kind of implying that they're faking the moon landings. Like, oh. There's a weird vibe of that 
um, which I, I, I kind of found very disconcerting because I'd never picked up on that before. But there's a weird thing because they have like cameras in there and yeah. stuff. And also the astronauts who are kind of in the spacesuits doing a spacewalk. When Bond is escaping and the guards go, get him, they try yeah, to. Yeah, they're moving like his... they're on the moon. Like they're on the moon. <laughs> Like it's slow motion. Like so, like you're not actually on the moon. You get that, right? If the um uniforms are heavy, they wouldn't be able to lift their arms. That isn't that the thing with the you know the the uniforms are really heavy or the spacesuits are really heavy, and that's why you know they could walk on the moon because of the reduced gravity. I'm gonna have to call in uh, smart enough to know better again. <laughs> No, no, that, that's true. And, and like, you see them bouncing around on the moon and it looks very weird because they, they're wearing these big bulky outfits, but, like, the, the gravity is like a quarter of that of Earth's. So they can they can jump around and, and you've got that weird sort of moonwalky thing. But in movies, it tends to just be people moving very slowly, like, oh, like they're underwater yeah. or something. And yeah. so them doing that, it's like you, you're not in space. You get that, right? <laughs> it's like we need you to get into character. If you're going to go in space, <laughs> we need you to be in space here on Earth. Feel it, or rather yeah, like, don't feel it. So, like, you get the impression that it's, like, a research facility, but then it's like a set. It's like a movie set. It's very yeah. strange. And then and he jumps onto a fully working moon buggy and <laughs> takes off. Through the desert. It's actually kind of clever in many ways because he manages, like, the moon buggy is perfectly designed for that kind yes. of terrain. Yeah. Whereas the, 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 the pursuit cars just crash out in the dust like yes. you know so it makes a lot of sense it does and then he does a bit of a switcheroo when he sets the moon buggy off he jumps out of it leaves yes. it going in one direction and then trike jacks one of the other guards <laughs> and takes his uh takes his trike and then does this really cool dismount once he gets out of the facility yeah he does and that's sean connery because then he races up and jumps in the car and they peel off out of there like that's a good unless i totally miss the stuntman it's quite possibly a stuntman no uh, no no no. i'm pretty sure that that is because you're right it's one shot like he jumps off the bike and then he yeah. runs up to tiffany and goes let's get out of here yeah and it's just one shot they don't cut so like but it, it is quite funny when you first see him get on the bike and he's obviously Obviously revving it up to speed and it hasn't quite got there yet and of course Sean Connery's quite tall so you see this like very length like tall man <laughs> yes, with his legs yeah. like crammed into the trike because they have very small trikes it's weird they're like children's yeah. toys what else is on my list I can't tell you because there's a cat sitting on it can you please get off my <laughs> list I need to read this out to Stu thank you so yes I had Connery's back moon buggy diamonds I don't know why I wrote that I think it's just they're really well, they, they are they feature quite heavily in the plot yeah, but also they're really, <laughs> they're really sparkly, like they're really tactile. Whenever they show up in the film, like they when are, they're, they're always they're always massive diamonds. They're always when, like these big shiny yeah. diamonds. Like when they're in the urn, even though they're fake, but they're really I don't know. There's definitely this sense of weight and character to the diamonds. Mm. I might be trying to justify. So Tiffany Case, the first U.S. Bond girl with the incredibly low underpants. I wrote that there. Plenty of tool. <laughs> Bond's first gay assassin couple, Willard White. Oh, Willard White. Yes, um, of course. Blofeld, Willard White. Multiple Blofelds, the laser diamond, the oil rig with the cheeks. Oh, you're putting the tape. And I do I do love the fact that the um, <laughs> the key to saving the world lies on a crappy cassette tape. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> which, which is there. often uh, hidden in the arse of Tiffany's uh, <laughs> swimsuit. Yes. But it's that, like there's something so um, non-permanent about cassette tapes. Like, I hear that cassette <laughs> tapes are making a, a comeback or something. That or is insane if it, actually, if it actually is a thing. They're getting retro love like vinyl, I guess, did. 
and and you know is a huge industry again now but like do you remember when you got a cassette and it was a because whenever I bought cassettes because I have a long history of cassettes as I said earlier mixtapes <laughs> and the ones that you bought to record yourself would be kind of clear plastic yes but the ones that were like an actual album they yeah, would, that would be, be the white or the cream or black mate like black, they'd be yeah, or orange like they'd be colors yeah or they'd be an opaque color Mm. And I just love the fact that that the world's best marchers cassette was like a cream, <laughs> yes. off white, bland. <laughs> I also I also love Blofeld's like uh, reaction. He's like, I despise martial music. Yeah, so weird. <laughs> I had a couple more points that I I definitely want to make here about this film, and then we can you know open the discussion up. First of all, Willard White and his voice converter, or rather Blofeld and his Willard White voice converter. Yes. The concept is that Blofeld is able to press a button so everything he says goes through a translator and comes mm-hmm. out the other end sounding like Willard White. Absolutely. And then Bond, Q builds Bond one, or rather he finds one for Bond quite easily because he made one for the kids last Christmas, and Bond talks to Blofeld as Bert Saxon. Like one of his, his henchmen guy. Yeah, and so you see Sean Connery, but it's someone else's voice. Now, why is it the voice coming out of their mouth? <laughs> yes. Like, when you think about the technology, it would be them speaking and the people on the other end hearing. Yes. Absolutely it would. So it should have been Blofeld going, Willard White speaking, yes, order that now. I don't have time for this. And then you'd hear the other person hearing, I don't have time for this. And so it's James Bond, it's Sean Connery doing the voice moves while the voice is the other actor who played Burt Saxby going, well, it's just that James Bond, he's really tough. Uh, You don't (laughs) want to mess with someone who's tough like James Bond. It's like, no, it would be Sean Connery's voice. Yes, exactly. And then, but it's like, we're all so dumb. We won't understand unless they put the voice in. <laughs> you, you imagine they definitely had a conversation about that, about, okay, so how are we going to get this across? It's like, oh, we'll yeah. just replace the voice. It's like, well, hang on, doesn't that, that doesn't work. Oh, it's science, it's technology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also love that apparently it's um, voice patterns uh, encoded onto a cassette tape. Yeah. So many cassette, there's a lot of cassette action in this, uh, in this movie. Yeah. And, like, how could you code anything onto a cassette? I know, it doesn't make any sense. How would that work? I could barely make my mixtapes without, you know, trying to cut off the DJ, like, introing the song (laughs) and waiting till they finish their intro to hit record so you can get a DJ. It'll be, like, lightning on that record button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How good was it back in the day when you'd tape songs off the radio? You just sit there and... (laughs) And like, that's, what what I, that's what a back announce was for. This is how like, I spent the 90s, making my own mixtapes and just being really, like, get the record play and you've got to have both fingers on and you've got to hit them at the same time and you'd just be waiting for the DJ to shut the hell up. <laughs> but, of course, they were told to talk until the, the lyrics started and then to come in at the end with the back announce. Do they even back announce anymore? They just run songs together. Oh, it's been that long since I, unfortunately, being that I am an ex-radio man, it's been so long since I've listened to broadcast radio. Terrestrial radio, yeah, Terrestrial I know. Radio. I, I, I popped into a shop just on my way home uh, this evening before this podcast, and they had a radio station playing, and it was obviously one of the commercial stations. And they went, um, it's time to get on the phone with ScoMo. <laughs> and... <laughs> 
those who aren't in Australia, our Prime Minister is Scott Morrison. And some years ago, he got the sobriquet ScoMo, talking about nicknames as we were earlier. So he's just ScoMo on air on commercial radio. And they, they were running this um, a sweep like, I saw with ScoMo. Oh. And I was going, is this what the young people are doing on radio these days? No, no, no. The young people aren't listening to radio, Natalie. <laughs> that's, well, the, that's the trouble. Can you imagine back in the day it being ISO with Joho, like John Howard? Or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I suppose Just, K. Rudd, happen. they were trying to go with K. Rudd for, for Kevin Rudd. But yeah, and then they had the Prime Minister on going, uh, yeah, no, I've just been showing all the Star Wars movies to my girls. That's what I've been doing uh, with lockdown. We've been watching the Star Wars movies. And these, Did he and... really? Like, like Scott Morrison got on and, and said that? Yeah, they actually they had an interview with him. So oh, obviously God. he's in he's in. Canberra, he's left Parliament to go talk to a couple of FM, you know, radio types who are going, yeah, tell us what you've been doing in ISO, PM, because he's, you know, connecting to the youth demographic <laughs> Sure. about how he's been playing the Star Wars films to his kids. So I guess that's... Uh... You know, they could possibly take the, the opportunity to ask about why he's not funding, you know, JobKeeper for, you know... <laughs> I don't know that they agree to those... No. I don't know. I didn't... Look, I had to leave the shop. Sorry, but... When you're talking with someone like Dicko and the Wanker... <laughs> Uh, it's not really gonna. It's not really gonna be some hard hitting uh, journalism there, what I guess. That? Was that from uh, Doctor Who? Who did Dickhead and the? I don't know. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, oh God, what was it? I can't. Uh, <laughs> from that episode of Doctor Who with the the terrible guy and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and his husband. Something. Um, that, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And the woman. Yeah. <laughs> and the girl. The girl. Or oh, the the blogger. The vlogger. The vlogger, that's right. She yeah, was yeah. the vlogger. Oh, this wasn't that long ago, Natalie. <laughs> it, it feels like a thousand years ago, but it was not Look, that long ago. The world has been really, yeah. Have you noticed that time has been speeding up again? Yes. Like we're about to hit June and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. March was like forever. What happened to April and May? Yeah, March was a thousand years and April and May were two weeks. Yeah, it's weird. It's very weird. Anyway, back to the crazy cassette action in this film. I also wanted to highlight in terms of cheesy stuff, the explosions when Blofeld activates because he sends his laser into the oh, sky. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's that lovely moment where one of the things I love about this film is once Willard White is rescued, and I'll get to that in a minute, he becomes such an active part of uncovering the plot. Yes, yeah, he's a really he's a really active character. I really like that. Like I like him and and for some reason his presence or his character, weird as it is, always I think makes me think higher of this film overall, even though he's only really in the last third of the movie. But he's Oh really? Just, this is what sells it for you. Well, partly, yeah. It's one of it's one of the big fun points for me is that you've got this sort of reclusive millionaire who doesn't seem like he'd be super reclusive, but he's been held hostage. So he was obviously reclusive enough in the beginning to be taken hostage. But he he sort of jumps into action to find, okay, where is this? What have they been doing? Bond says it was this high and it, draw it for me. It'll be this. If this guy has got any reputation, you know, the, mm. he's talking about Professor Metz, who's the Nobel Prize winner for laser refraction or something. And he's the guy Blofeld has hired under the pretense that he's going to hold the world hostage for peace. <laughs> and really, Blofeld is wearing the kind of safari suit slash <laughs> typical Blofeld Nehru jacket outfit combination that just does not scream peace. It does no. not in any way scream, I'm a peace 
loving guy. <laughs> Poor Professor Metz. We never really see what happens to him. He either gets exploded on the no, rig. No, I mean, he definitely dies on that rig, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but we never see what happens to Blofeld. You just well, see no, we don't. submarine kind of slammed into the wall. But I'll get to that. But yes, when he fires, because he gets that laser into the air, and uh, this is what I was saying. So Willard White has this moment of going, what's happened to my satellite? And the guys running the satellite are really excited, going, oh, my God, it's Willard White. Oh, yeah, the satellite took off 24 minutes ago. We're really happy. It's on trajectory. And then bang. Oh, someone's taking control. We can't (laughs) abort the mission. Yeah, and I kind of love that. And then he has... Because, yeah, he had this whole empire set up. Yeah. Uh, beforehand. So, I mean, obviously, like, no one knew what was actually happening. And yes. they assumed that it was all coming from Willard White and not some strange yeah. international uh, criminal mastermind. A cuckoo, as it were. A cuckoo in the nest. True. A cuckoo in the nest. Cuckoo. 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 Every podcast I have to mention <laughs> Spectre. I wonder if that will go away as we as we leave Spectre behind. Or, or if Spectre will keep <laughs> rearing its ugly head. Stu, life finds a way. It sure does. <laughs> But yeah, so he fires off a laser beam on a missile, which one we assume are nuclear missiles, one in North Dakota, so an American one. Then they fire a laser beam at a Russian submarine under the water. Yeah, which seems weird. How do they pinpoint a sub? Like the whole point of those subs is that they're not like easily found. Isn't that the point of deep sea submarines? That yes, it is. You're not supposed to be able to track them that easily? Absolutely. That is absolutely one of the key selling points of those things. I mean, I'm not a scientist or a military expert. All I know is that the Collins-class submarines that Australia bought are rusty <laughs> buckets, apparently. But seems strange to me. But anyway, they blow that up, thankfully, in the middle of the ocean, so hopefully nobody's hurt. And I assume North Dakota is a fairly sparsely populated state. And then they blow up a whole range of missiles in China. And there's this great shot of, I mean, it's just all of the special effects. They keep the explosions incredibly quick. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Everything turns red and then it sort of blows up and then they cut away. I wonder if they had to spend so much of the production budget on getting Connery back that they couldn't (laughs) afford like the special effects because the China one is great because it's literally just a picture of (laughs) about 10 missile warheads aimed and, you know, ready to fire at a moment's notice. One Chinese guy wearing a helmet looking up and going, and then another Chinese guy on fire. (laughs) But like he's on fire before the missiles blow up. Yes, like, yes, it's a stuntman that runs in front of the picture on yes. fire. It's like he's an ant and there's a giant magnifying glass, which I suppose is what the principle is, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. And uh, he just like runs and goes, <laughs> I don't know, they're so cheesy. And uh, the one in North Dakota, you can see the top of the missile like turning red. And there's three guys who are on the platform looking at it. And they just don't move. Like, they don't even move. Yeah, no. They (laughs) They don't even try to run away when, like, this strange red glowing. (laughs) So great. So great. It's extremely good. It's a very good effect. That's my one-minute challenge. But while I was watching the film, I actually wrote down a few things because I've been meaning to do this every time I watch the films, and this time I finally did. (laughs) Because there were just a few lovely, like, what? 
that I wanted to write down. The first one being, and I can't believe I didn't put this in my one minute challenge, Bambi and Thumper. Bambi and Thumper. I, I thought about this as well when we were talking about Bond Girls. I'm like, I didn't write down Bambi and Thumper. They are great. I love them. And I was- really As a concept, the, as the execution, amazing. As just physically, the fact that half of the time they're not beating Bond up, they're just showing off their gym skills. Yeah, they're just flipping around. <laughs> <laughs> just doing tumbling and handstands and backflips and going, your turn. And then the other one will do like a, you know, a trick on a- what do they call it at gymnastics when they're on the bars and she'll flip up over the bars and then go, you're on, Thumper. <laughs> they're just showing off. And then they beat the utter crap out of Bond. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that they really do, like, beat the shit out of him. Beat <laughs> the shit out of him. It's so good. Like, it's the most comprehensive thrashing that Bond has had in a long time. And I include, yeah. because I this is another thing I wrote down, I forgot to put in my one-minute challenge, the elevator sequence earlier in this film with Peter Franks. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Like, that elevator fight is brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Tense. Good. It's tense. It's, it doesn't have music behind it for most of it. Same with the Bambi and Thumper fight. They kind of leave the music out of these incredibly... <laughs> you know, dynamic close-up fights. <laughs> but, yeah, Bambi and Thumper are just something else. And I love the fact that they're just lazing around the house in bikinis. Yeah, sure, because why wouldn't you? Just waiting for someone to show up. That's it. Well, I mean, presumably they're guarding Willard White. I assume that's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but and and you, ima- you have to imagine that at some point he tried to escape, at which point they probably did to him what they just did to Bond. Yeah. And he's like, well, I'm not doing that again. He's locked into a room underneath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. Like, like so they're they're there to to make sure he doesn't escape. So they they would be hired by Blofeld then. Yes, I assume I assume they're Spectre agent. But Spectre's not in this film. It's just for me, Stu. It's just imagining the backstory of Bambi and Thumper. <laughs> like they must have been. Were they circus- in the circus together? Like they uh- must have been circus gymnasts who had a double act, mm-hmm. who were hired because gymnastics is one thing, but they trashed Bond's face. <laughs> it was, it's so, every time I see that scene, I'm like, I love it. And there's a massive rock in the living room that Thumper's just lying on. Yes. Like this amazing. That's very, that's very 70s interior decor, like oh. just having a giant rock in your living room. And they're just gorgeous and, and beautiful, deadly, weirdly infantilized names. And then they go in the pool. And the only reason Bond defeats them is because he's got like stronger arms in a pool situation that he can dunk them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. If they he had falls to the pool, then... pool. They would have killed him. Yeah. <laughs> what way to go. I feel like Bond would have been happy with that. Not the worst way to go. Yeah, but it's real funny the way he comes in and they're just like, oh, hi, I'm Bambi, I'm Thumper. And he's like, I'm looking for Willard White. It's like, oh, first we're going to have a real fun time. And then she knees him in the groin. Yes. It's so good, Stu. Yes. Oh. There's an element of deconstruction there. Yeah. It's so good. The Yeah, and then they end up in the pool and it's mwah, it's just glorious. And then Bond is wet. He's just like totally wet going down to meet Willard White. And he's like, FBI, CIA. And Bond just goes, British intelligence. It's like, no, James, you're British intelligence. Everyone else is CIA. Uh, yes, that's right. Well, well, you know, Bond doesn't care about everyone else. He's the main act. And why doesn't he say MI6? Is it because the American people watching don't know what MI6 is? I guess. He's just got British intelligence. <laughs> so good. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Yeah. FBI, CIA, British intelligence. British intelligence. Ah, oh, crap, you guys. 
and after that, Willard White, you know, takes charge. And the, oh, there's that lovely line where he gets shot at by Bert Saxby, who's been told by Blofeld to, to get out there. Yes. And he says, Bert Saxby? Tell him he's fired. Tell him he's fired. As a stuntman <laughs> falls in very dangerously down a mountainside. It's just so endearing. <laughs> um, the other thing I want to mention in that same scene and beforehand where James is, is talking on the phone with the voice translator is that his pink tie is absurdly high. <laughs> yes, it is. It's very, it's a very short tie. You know, because I don't know, I don't even know how to tie a tie, but what's, Stu, you're a sartorial, you know, genius. What's the correct length that you're tie? Because we always see that Donald Trump has these in- in- absurdly long he has, ties. It's a very ties. long tie, yes, exactly. Um, And uh, I can I can say as, as someone, you know, a little bit a little bit thick around the midsection than I used to be, uh, that can affect how your tie sits. Um, you, you have to sort of let it hang a bit longer uh, to okay. sort of make it all the way down. But you want it to be sort of sitting sort of above your belt line, but like pro- probably down to, your, down to sort of your navel, basically where you want it to be. But but the thing is like when you had much higher cut pants, when, when pants used to come up a lot higher, ties were actually a lot shorter because you, you wanted it to sit on your, on your waistline. Maybe you know? it was the jacket button. So once he it puts might have been the jacket, yeah. Yeah, once he puts his jacket on and ties the button, it seems fine. But, yeah, when he's got his jacket off... It, it does seem absurdly right. short. It, 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 I like noticed it too. It, it is weird. Just below the nipple. It's really... <laughs> and also... Or it's more of a cravat. Maybe it's a holdover from the previous film. I found an incredible website as part of my On Her Majesty's Secret Service essay. I found this incredible website called... I think it's bondsuits.com. But if you just oh, Google wow. the suits of James Bond... It's this guy, he's a graphic designer, I think, in in London or New York, and he's just got this incredible repository of articles and photos of all of Bond's outfits, plus some of the villains and things like that. But it has been – because remember last week we were talking about cravats? Oh, boy. (laughs) I went and looked up all the cravats in Bond. and Well, it's not all of them, but it's a whole range of them and the different types of cravats and their different names and where they're worn. And we were laughing at George Lazenby for wearing this crazy big cravat at the bullfighting. But apparently that's perfectly appropriate, like, race wear. It's called a stock <laughs> called a stock tie that's where you would wear that that's appropriate dress for that kind i disagree but anyway (laughs) (laughs) so it's not it's kind of a 60s thing but also kind of a i guess upper class english crusty racewear type of thing you know how sure but you go to ascot and you're supposed to wear a three-piece suit and a hat you know you don't he wasn't at ascot he was at a bullfight in spain like I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to give you some <laughs> background, Stu. So they pointed out on that site that in On Her Majesty's Secret Service is the first time that Bond wears a cream suit when he's at the hotel first with, with where he meets Tracy. Oh, um, really? Yeah, before he goes to the casino. So he sort of rocks up to the hotel and he's in a crisp cream suit. And Connery never wore cream suits. He always wore blue, grey and then black Tuxes. He, no, no, he definitely had a white. He had a white tuxedo on. Ah, that's white tie. That's not. Ah, a, that's I see. Not a, I see. A, okay. Like a light coloured suit. For I the see daytime. what you mean. Yes. Okay. Okay. He, Fair enough. He wore light grey, but he mostly wore dark grey, dark blue, the occasional brown. I think he wears a brown one in Goldfinger, and then yeah. like white tux, uh, black tux. And so this is the first time Connery, therefore, wears a cream suit. Oh, okay. In 1971. And it is very distinctive. Like I, looking back now, I'm like, oh, that's a big signifier to me of 
this is Diamonds Are Forever, like when he walks yes. in to find Willard White and he's in the white the cream suit and the pink tie. Like it's yeah, it's a very different look to early Connery's. It's very, yeah. It's very American. It's very, it's very seventies. Yeah. So I wrote that down. Other things I wrote down while watching the, uh, oh, I wrote down Blofeld safari suit with the high neck. I put that there. Control of the world by a cassette tape. And when Bond is, he's on the oil rig at the end and he goes, oh, so I see you control the whole laser from this little cassette tape. So I imagine if I just press this button, bing, and the tape just like shoots out. Why was he allowed anywhere near that control panel? Yes. And why was he allowed (laughs) to put the tape back? Yes. He's like, like, put it back, 007. I'm yeah. like, why are you letting him put it back? <laughs> there are you all... have all these people around. Yeah. He's like, and no, that... he'll never learn if he doesn't do, do it this... himself. Like, none of them look directly at him while he's either talking to Tiffany there or sneaking the cassette into her ch- b- bikini <laughs> bottom or when he does the sleight of hand, which is, it's like, okay, sleight of hand, but I don't think it's particularly good. Like, he it's literally... It's like kids' party sleight of hand. It's <laughs> yeah. not really like, you know, Penn and Teller sleight of hand. I will have to ask my good friend Pete Booth, who is a, a magician, and I think he's a fan of Bond films, but I will have to ask him to give an appraisal of <laughs> James Bond's sleight of hand <laughs> cassette tape because it has to be obvious enough that the audience knows what he's doing but then it just looks kind of too obvious for the goons to not pick up on it but they're particularly goony goons this one's like they're the ones with the matching outfits and <laughs> Blofeld really has a thing for getting people in uniform like you can imagine he, love, he loves a man in uniform he loves a uniform but did you notice too that there's that guy on the platform who's the T minus 10 minutes and counting guy and he is unflappable. Yes. He, he stays at his post, to his credit. Everything starts going wrong, and he's just sitting there going, D minus eight minutes and counting. Like, just, <laughs> I mean, that's a quality worker. That's the kind of person you want to keep on your staff. Unfortunately, everything blows up. <laughs> I love when Tiffany, he gives Tiffany, gets Tiffany to get a shotgun, machine gun. She says, here, and he's driving the crane. <laughs> Bond says, shoot them and all these armed goons come racing up they get shot at by you know willard white felix leiter and the armed helicopters of the cia who are coming in to blow the joint up so they're already dead or they're already kind of down and then tiffany goes okay i'll just shoot the gun fires it off and then falls (laughs) backwards into the ocean yes off this oil rig platform and it's like a It's a very good moment. And it's something something that I've seen in movies after this. Like, like that's definitely a thing that happens in other movies. Other Bond movies? or Well, no, no, just other movies in general. That that becomes like a trope. Oh, the, the gun like, being so strong you can't sort of... Yeah, like, like the woman, like, picking up the gun, firing the gun, it immediately, like, jumps out of her hands and then she, like, falls over or falls down a hole or something. Ah, uh, okay. That's a thing. Well, that, that, that's in more than one movie. It's interesting your chat about, about Tiffany Case and, and liking her as a Bond girl because I read some criticism... Some people thought that she's quite sort of shrill and helpless were the words that I remember reading, that she's not a super effective Bond villain. But the thing is, she's a she's like a charmer. She's not an action woman. And yeah, sort of the exactly. whole second the whole second half of the film is her trying to get on the good side of the authorities because, you know, she could be going to jail for her part in a diamond smuggling ring. 
So she's trying to kind of play the two sides off each other. She's trying to sneak the diamonds and Hmm. get her back on bond. But then she realizes, oh, God, plenty of tools turned up dead. Maybe I better help. And and she's trying to sweeten the pot a bit. But then Blofeld kidnaps her. And by the way, Blofeld in drag. Were we going to forget that? (laughs) Do you know I forget it every time? Every time. It's something that happens so quickly that I'm just like, I I always forget it. I always just like, oh, that's right. He dresses up as a woman to escape. That's obviously in the Spectre playbook because one of his henchmen did that in a previous film. Yeah, yeah, in Thunderball, at the start of Thunderball. It's in like the the Spectre handbook they give to everyone. It's like, now if you're ever trying to escape from James Bond, please, you know, consider dressing up as a woman. Drag is... He doesn't respect women. He won't notice you. I'm just saying that maybe cross-dressing is a bit of a kink for a lot of these (laughs) supervillains. You know, I'm not here to kink shame anybody. But I love the fact that he's got like a full face of makeup on. You're like he just Yeah, I mean he's committed to the bit. Yeah. But you're walking through a casino. Everyone's focused on the casinos. I'm reading about the production of this film, even like Sean Connery barely slept because he would just go off gambling. <laughs> And drinking. Of course they did. And seeing shows. And he said that, like, a take for some scene was late because he was too busy collecting a win. Like, he was... <laughs> You know, they're filming in a working casino. Yeah, absolutely, of course. And, it's, you know, film shoots take a long time to set things up and all the lights have got to be checked. And da, 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 da. And well, then I, I love that. I lo- that reminds me of that shot of Q just going along and winning on every single pinball machine. Yeah. Because he has um, because he has a little device that, that remember, sets them off. I remember him read, uh, reading an interview with him where he said that was one of his favourite films to do because he got to go on location and he had that scene with Jill St. John who played Tiffany Case. Yeah. Because he didn't often get a lot of scenes with people other than Bond. Other than Bond, yeah. (laughs) The occasional M. Yeah, I just love the thought of Sean Connery going, just hold on a minute, I'm winning here, I'm on a lucky streak. (laughs) Hold on, I'm on a roll. Yeah. Speaking of rolling, the stunt car chase was another thing I forgot to put on my one challenge. I didn't know it. It's an excellent sequence. It's a really weird sequence, though, because it kind of, they they, they literally go in circles. But it also is sort of a little bit redundant plot-wise. Yes, it's it's really an an excuse to have a car chase. Yeah, it's an excuse to have a big car chase, like destruction derby in the middle of Los Las Vegas. Yeah, and I was... Every second sentence in this podcast is going to be, I was reading about this. (laughs) Only because I I already knew one famous thing about this car chase, which was the way that the two-wheel stunt... So the car goes... I was going to mention this, yeah. It goes into an alley on its left and goes up against the wall on its left-hand side, but then it comes down out the other side on the right-hand wheels or something (laughs) like that. Like it... So they had to flips in the middle of the alley. They had to film that shot of Jill St. John and Sean Connery in the car and then flip them sort of from one side to the other. Yeah, and, and he turns the wheel and there's like a crunching sound effect or something where we're, we're supposed to believe. I'm not sure what they thought people would think about that. <laughs> but that was done just to try and make it make sense that yeah. when it's out on the other, because it's got the whole point is it's skidded out through an incredibly narrow alley. At what point did it have room to like? Like go up onto the other two wheels. Yeah, exactly. What are we even talking about? But I suppose they had the shot and they, you know, they didn't want to refilm because they would have had to shut down streets or whatever. So they just invented to put in a little trick shot of them. Oh, no. <laughs> 
But it's a great, I mean, it's a great stunt. What I read that I hadn't realized before, so I'd known about that one for years, but what I hadn't realized before is that Ford gave them a whole bunch of cars to use for that chase because they knew that they would be wrecking a bunch. So they went to Ford and they said, we'd like to use some of your cars. And Ford said, sure, here's a whole bunch. We have one condition. And that is that Sean Connery drive, that red Mustang. Red Mustang. Yeah, yeah. Model of which I don't know, but was obviously like a newish car for them. It's a very won- good car. And it's Tiffany's car, but Bond drives it in that yeah. sequence, obviously, car chase. Because for them, marketing-wise, having Bond driving their Mustang in a cool chase, that's just brilliant marketing for them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that was the caveat. But I love, because I've never been to Las Vegas, but that, as I understand it, is the real old part of Vegas. You know, now there's a whole big, even bigger, shinier kind of part but that oh okay right yeah that sort of strip is like the original strip which right, makes okay yeah because the newer part of vegas would have started being built i suppose in the 80s and 90s and stuff but you get to see a bit of old vegas that old magic the uh the <laughs> the place where you can see a you know you can see a show you can see a tired vaudeville comedian <laughs> telling, telling horrible jokes for like uh, five can, minutes. For like five minutes straight. He's like, that's my act. I'm like, really? We saw you start. I love the fact that his acorns are just two sexy women showgirls standing They're next to him. There. They don't do anything. They're just there. There's actually a deleted scene of when Winton, uh, Mr. Winton, Mr. Kid go to kill him because you just see him, Bond finds him dead. Yeah, but yeah. You don't actually see his death scene. Apparently how they kill him. I think I might have seen it because it did ring a bell. They shoot him with a prop gun. I don't know why they go in to go, we're massive fans. Can we have an autograph or something? So you see them going, oh, we've got some suggestions. So one of their suggestions is like a fake gun that goes like bang. You know, the the comedy gun shoots a mm. stick that says bang. And they shoot that and then they go, ah, oh, what about this? And shoot him with a real gun. So that's the way that they kill him and it's a deleted scene, which probably makes sense. The other thing that I wrote down is when Bond lands, so he's parachuted into the oil rig in this big sort of aluminium soft hexagon thing. <laughs> yes. And there's not, not three, really going for stealth. There's three parachutes and you see the them hit the water and the parachutes kind of flop into the water. And then you see Blofeld and the you know hoon hoons. The goons looking at – Hoons was the car chase. You see them looking at this thing and as it starts to move forward and it cuts back to the big silvery cube hexagon thing and the parachutes are just gone. They're just not there. Oh, yeah, I guess – yeah, I hadn't noticed that, but yeah, the, you're right. I really noticed that this time. I was like, what the hell? They've just – Yeah, just- because he's, he's like – he's rolling that thing and, of course, they would immediately get like – caught up in it yeah yeah so they just disappear just a continuity thing that i noticed this time not not a reason to love or hate the film but yeah oh and um the other thing was lois maxwell as money penny her scene with sean oh, connor yeah that was great so she wasn't going to be in the film initially so, oh okay you know, she's, well she's not in the scene where bond's getting a briefing from m she just turns up at the border to give him his documents hmm. she had been holding out for a pay rise so oh, okay it was a bit on edge whether she would come back even she had been sort of saying hey why don't you give me a bit more money eventually they worked it out and went oh look we should have her in there and so they wrote this bit into the script but she and sean connery filmed their scenes separately 
Like they didn't even get, uh, maybe do a scheduling or something. They weren't in the shot together. It's all reverses. Oh my God. I had not even picked up on that. I had never picked up on it either. Uh, but that's similarly what I read on Wikipedia today. So again. That's astonishing. So they just never, that they, they, it was like all over the shoulder. I mean, I, I'll notice it now that I go back and watch yeah. it. But I, that, I never picked up on that. Never did either. And it's such a charming scene, although a little bit morbid when you consider he says would you like me to bring you something back and she says oh a diamond in a ring and he says would you settle for a tulip and then she laughs and says yes which i love i always love that that line yeah but you know he he has just lost his wife quite recently i know i was about to say it's a little bit <laughs> insensitive money penny he's just come back from a revenge spree yes um and so. again the timeline is interesting so blofeld has gotten away from on her majesty's secret service and killing tracy maybe that's been a couple of months so at the same time as he was doing all that stuff with the angel of death girls and his food allergy super plan he was also (laughs) starting work on the laser gun (laughs) because well he talks about you know no one having seen willard white for three years so one must imagine that blofeld's been running this smuggling and you know for a while well i mean that's fine i mean he runs the long game he's got he's got multiple plans yeah it's just again it's just one of those things don't think about it too much natalie i'm just overthinking it multiple plans multiple clones what did you make of they go to the circus and they have this big again that that whole circus scene was there because the guy who ran that circus was a big bond fan sure so said absolutely come film at my circus that was circus circus wasn't wasn't it? That, that's quite yes. a famous, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of gusset work, a lot of flying, <laughs> flying gussets. <laughs> <laughs> Just beautiful women in a very high cut body leotards with legs akimbo being spun through the air and Bond sure. and Felix Leiter just, oh, and Felix Leiter, we have another Felix Leiter. We have a new Felix. Yep. Just keeping up. I've come to expect it now. I know, so, so they've definitely, we have not had a returning Felix yet. No. No. That's amazing. No, we have not. And this guy's Or a returning Blofeld. I mean, we've had three different Blofelds at this point. That is true. There has not been a returning Blofeld. Although Charles Gray obviously was in You Only Live Twice, but as the uh, ally Henderson who gets knifed yes. in the back in the first scene he appears in. So That's true. Bringing it back to how I framed this film at the start of this uh, rambling chat, I do think there's so many set pieces in this film that often you'll just think, oh, I love that bit with the moon buggy or I love that bit. Blofeld, his tiny alien spaceship submarine being thrown around the oil rig by Bond in the... Yes. <laughs> in, in what feels very vindictive. Yes. It's weird they don't get a, a final confrontation, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, that's like you only live twice because, yeah. yes, they don't want to kill Blofeld off permanently. No, absolutely. But I mean, there are ways to do that. Like, it just seems weird that they, they keep him at, literally at arm's distance. He's over somewhere else. He He's hanging from the crane and Bond is operating the crane, but there's not a sense of, it didn't feel as cathartic as it should have, I think, especially coming the, the movie after Blofeld killed his wife. Yes. And what I understand from the production is that the final sequence was supposed to be a lot more involved and was supposed to be quite a bit more of a production number, but they didn't have the money and everything that was planned or written about was too expensive or too impractical. So they went with the oil rig idea. So maybe that's part of that. Like it wasn't a proper, it wasn't the proper ending they wanted to do. They kind of just had to tack it there. Sure. And then a similar thing, it just ends with Bond beautifully swan diving off the side of the oil rig. Yeah. And then it, you know, there's Perfect a explosion. Form. Oh, and those explosions were <laughs> apparently the explosions went off too early on the oil rig. 
Uh, of course and they the did. the cameras weren't ready, so they didn't get – well, they had a couple of cameras rolling, but not all of them. So that's why there's only, you know, a, a very brief shot, like a wide shot of the oil rig exploding. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Yeah, they didn't get a lot of the footage, and I guess they only had one shot at it. <laughs> Did they actually, was that actually like a, an oil rig they went to? I don't know. I I guess maybe a, a replica one or maybe it was a model or something, like a smallish model. Yeah. I, I couldn't see anything about that. I leave that open to, to commentary, you know, call in uh, if you know. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that there's a lot, there's the oil rig set piece, there's plenty of tool being thrown into the pool, there's her turning up drowned in the pool, there's the... The car chase, there's Bond sneaking into the back of the van of Professor Metz and, and getting onto the, the Space Lab set. Yes. There's that <laughs> lovely little encounter with um, Hans Gutschheimer from G-Section checking radiation shields. And then <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really cool little, little bit. Lovely little moment. Um, just a great bit of, and then Sean Connery leaves and goes, no, no, never, you know, don't need to tell me twice or whatever, and he's all hoity. And then I've heard uh, everything I need. Yes, and then and then the guy walks in the other door going, Hey, class Gergesheimer. <laughs> he had a check radiation <laughs> shield. And the moon buggy chase. And oh, when he gets he steps on the elevator and goes up the side of the White House, that external elevator. Oh, yes, yeah, little, yeah, the, the spelunking scene. No, spelunking's underground. Oh, sorry, yes, so that, that's like, true. The mount the mountaineering. We don't want you mountaineering all over the building. But there is a spelunking scene when he's trapped, you know, in that elaborate yes, uh, plant. Oh, and did you notice that Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, they transport him out of the White House to go take him into the desert and they go through this underground tunnel that emerges through like an Adam West Batman style. Yes, absolutely. Entry, it lifts up like, like with fake, fake cactus and everything. Fake and and, and Amsterdam, you know, when they're in Am- there's the elevator scene in Amsterdam and, and, and yeah. Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd are like taking photos of the little old lady from South Africa who's yeah. been drowned. Yeah, there's all these kind of moments that are so, oh, wait, that's that film. That's that. F- it's all the same film. But I do wonder if it suffered because they had to depart from, you know, the plot that Fleming did, which admittedly is maybe not super great. I'm not sure, but uh, they had to kind of fudge the whole Blofeld angle. So it maybe got a bit hypermobile, as we said, <laughs> a bit stretchy <laughs> in the connective tissue. But it, it, in the novel, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd get killed, I think maybe halfway through, but of course they're kept to the very end. So instead of having that confrontation with Blofeld, he has a confrontation with Wint and Kidd. Yes, in what has now become a classic last second secondary henchman uh, returning for a, for a revenge plot. It's so good. <laughs> I know it's problematic with the whole bomb between the legs, but it is. It's still good. I quite like he, it. He he goes a, a bomb surprise, and it's literally a bomb in it's a, a bomb. giant <laughs> And then he tricks him again. It's that whole thing with James Bond tricking people because he knows wines. Yes. <laughs> and he says you're looking the the Mouton Rothschild or something. But I would have expected a cla- a, a claret. Oh well, we're out of claret. Ha <laughs> It is a claret. It is a claret. I've I've smelled that cologne before, and both times I've smelled a rat. And then Mr. Kid just gets like the skewers, sets them on fire, <laughs> lights them on fire, and then just makes for Bond. Like, <laughs> and he seems to take ages, and Bond's just sitting there. And Tiffany's reaction is, yeah. <laughs> T- Tiffany's reaction is like he's like whipped his dick out or something. Like it's really weird. It's a I, weird reaction. I was going to say it's just like eating a bad oyster or something, but yeah. 
<laughs> but but she, she reacts to him as if he's done something vaguely distasteful. Yeah. She's like, whoa, what? <laughs> she's, he's, he's trying to kill him, Tiffany, if that's yeah. what's going on. And then Mr. <laughs> uh, Wint uses his, um, I think it's like a part of the drinks trolley or something to start strangling Bond. And then Bond yes. smashes a bottle of champagne and throws it at Mr. Kidd, who then lets, sets on fire. <laughs> <laughs> jumps overboard and then Bond uh, throws Mr. Wint off with the – just flips him off in this beautiful flip with the bomb tied between his legs. And then, like, he explodes upon hitting the water and then they just have a moment looking up at the sky. Like, there's no <laughs> – Yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely the start of – I feel like we, it's happened before, but, it, but it's definitely the start of Bond starting to be a bit more – you know, murder someone and then immediately make, like, a weird quip. We definitely start straying into psychopath Bond territory at this point. But he's been doing that. Remember after he killed Rosa Klebb and he said she's had her kicks? He's been doing that for a long time. It's more that... true. It's more that, for me, they're on a large boat. Yes. Did no one notice? (laughs) Boat. You know, maybe it was just the few moments before, you know, boat security started running towards them going, oh, my God, there's been an explosion. Like... And do they just leave them? I suppose they're both dead if one's on fire and one's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what happens after the, after that? It's really weird. Like, why weird. did he jump overboard when he was... Why didn't he just stop, drop, and roll? <laughs> what are you supposed to do well, if you're Well, because he was, he, was he was covered in, like, brandy or something, so it was it was an accelerant, so he was going up. Yeah. So I guess he just jumped over the side to put himself out. I, I guess we're to assume that he died. Yeah. Um, Mr. Wint definitely died. He blew up. Yeah, he blew Uh, up. And then we get, like, an actual final line, thank you very much, movie franchise. Yes. Um, Which we haven't had very, very often. And it's a great final line where where, uh, Tiffany's sort of like, James, how do we get the satellite down again? <laughs> oh, I thought you meant um his uh well he just they left with their tails between their legs. Oh no, that, that's that's terrible. It's a yeah, that's, garbage line. That's <laughs> get, <not> get out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I really like the final line. Like so, we actually get like a, a a little quippy final line, and then it's credits, and it's great. I yeah. love it. it, it it's a really good final line. How are we supposed to get all of those diamonds out of the sky? <laughs> Interesting fact on Tiffany Case. In the novel, supposedly Bond actually does fall in love with her in the same way that he did with Vesper Lind, and she's the first woman since Vesper Lind that he's fallen in love with. And I don't get that from the movie. Like, you don't – because she sort of starts to ask him before Wint and Kid come in with their surprise dinner. She starts to say, look, I've got a serious question, and I know being the girl I'm not supposed to ask, but I just really want you to think about what I'm about to ask you. And, of course, it's the diamonds line. It's just interrupted. But you don't get – a sort of a super in love like you did with Tracy, for example. No, that's right. In yeah. the previous film. She's much more just like that, I guess, pussy galore kind of great yeah, exactly. fun type thing. In the book, similarly, she is averse to men because, like Honey Rider, oh, and possibly pussy galore as well. No, Pussy Galore, I think someone tweeted me to say that a she, Fleming actually said, oh, no, 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 she was a lesbian, but only went until she met James Bond. Once she met the right man, it was all, it was all, it was all hetero again. Sure, because that's how that works. That's how that works. But Honey Ryder, as we saw, you know, she talked about a man, you know, a friend of her father's coming and, and sexually assaulting her. And that's what happened to Tiffany Case as well, apparently. So right. she's kind of, you know, averse to men. So she's got a bit of a journey in the sense that, I guess she falls in love with Bond too. So, yeah, there's that element, but that's not in the movie at all. She's, you know, no, absolutely not. very sexually confident. She's physically confident. She's, I want to know what her workout routine was just to be in all of those. 
<laughs> tiny, tiny bikinis. Whatever it is, it's working. Any other thoughts from you, Stu? On this? No, it was. It's really interesting to watch this one because obviously this is some. This is one that looms large in my memory. Um, yeah, it's too. one that I. This is the first one that I that I've sort of watched so far, other than Goldfinger. Like I was, I was, I've seen Goldfinger a number of times. But this is the first one that I've seen a lot of times, but I haven't seen it for a while. And to revisit it, it's not as like unimpeachable as I remember. But it's yeah. also a lot better than I was expecting. I was expecting a bit of a mixed bag, and it's actually yeah, it's pretty good. It's, it's a nice movie. It, it's it's got it's a lot. There's fun. some fun. It's fun. There's there's good action scenes. A bit of humour. The plot basically makes sense. It's ludicrous, but it's ludicrous in that wonderful James Bond way. Yes. Um. So it it makes sense internally. Like I get what what Blofeld's plan is. That it falls apart instantly is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> like it just like a couple of attack helicopters come and he's like, well, time to go to my mini submarine. Yes. And he just after telling Professor Meds like, go back to your post. Stay by your post. Get my sub ready, please. I'm about to bail. <laughs> I'm going to leave. I don't know. The quality of assistants and henchmen, it, I mean, I know it's a recurring joke in Austin Powers, but it's a for a reason. Like, yeah. all these people working on, <laughs> am I a henchman? <laughs> <laughs> Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? Yeah, exactly. So as we come to review this film, where do you think you would put it in your list? I struggle with this quite a bit, actually. Because, Me too. Yeah, I, I, it's, going, it's going fairly high me and i worry that it's nostalgia talking because like as i said i I have a strong like emotional connection to this movie this is one of my personal favorite bond movies but only because i saw it so much when i was relatively young and i'm like am i am i putting this up too high but i'm like no it's it's a solid movie it's got its problems but it's definitely up there so I'm, i'm putting it in my now third place so my my rankings are goldfinger from russia with love and diamonds are forever so okay. between between From Russia with Love and Dr. No. So this is really interesting because I had the thought when I first – I was like, this is going to go right up under Goldfinger for me <laughs> just because it's so many good moments. And But, again, plot-wise, like I took out the trash on You Only Live Twice because of a lot of it doesn't make sense. Mm. And then I've got the thing of, oh, well, would I watch this over Dr. No? Probably, but also I don't know that it's as good a film as that. And because I put From Russia with Love under Dr. No due to emotion, I found myself like hoodwinked, not hoodwinked, um, trapped. <laughs> snookered. Yeah, snookered. That's the word. Like, oh, but it's not as good a film as From Russia it's with not, Love. From Russia with Love is unquestionably a better film than this movie. But it's got all the stuff. <laughs> So do you know what I mean? So I find that I'm snookered and and because I put, you know, I do think with my time again, I probably would swap from Russia with Love and Dr. No, but I I didn't because of emotion. And then I'm thinking, well, should I just put it number two and say, screw it. This is my list. It's up there because it's one that I've watched a lot. It's definitely in my mindset. So I'm really conflicted. I'm very conflicted. I'm still deciding (laughs) as I talk to you. I think. We're we're getting a live decision here, people. I'm going to have to put it number four after From Russia With Love. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, well that makes sense. I mean, that, that's where it would go in your list. Yeah. Even it's though. Not, it's not better than Thunderball. I feel it would. Oh, sorry. Sorry. It is better than Thunderball. Thunderball is not better than Diamonds of Forever. Yeah. But I've then got on Her Majesty's Secret Service. While I think that's a good film, I don't think I'd sort of pick it above Diamonds Are Forever. Sure. For a watch. 
yeah, even even having revisited it and and like given it due consideration, it is it is it is an underrated film. You know, I still like Diamonds Are Forever more. <laughs> I still like it more too, but whether I like it more than Doctor No, probably. So I'm just I'm really I I, I almost feel like I want to tie it with Doctor No, but that's not that's cheating. Um, <laughs> There's no ties here. There has to be a winner. What's our policy on changing around in the future? <laughs> <laughs> it feels so final, you know? Okay. That's part of the fun of it, though, because, like, you, you, no one watches these films in order, except for people doing insane experiments like we are. Yeah. So, you know, you, we're going through and, and we're, we're, this, we're finding out things that maybe we didn't even know. And this is the problem. Because I'm going as I go, I'm, like, making a decision each week, I worry that if I put it above Dr. No, so if I put it under Goldfinger as my number two... Mm. That will then push down Dr. Noen from Russia with Love. And I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that. But at the same time, if that's how I'm feeling, shouldn't I just embrace that? Exactly. Okay. Embrace your feelings, Natalie. All right. I'm going to put it number two. Number two. I'm going to put it under Goldfinger at wow. this point. You, okay. Now I'm, I'm, I'm tense again. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. We have different things, different opinions. It's great. That- it literally sounds like you're going, sure, Natalie, no, absolutely. You're justified in making all of your decisions. Maybe I should just split the difference and put it number three like you did. But then it's I've then it's, above, put, then it's above from Russia with Love. Yes, but not above Dr. No. And I'm not, not sure Dr. that I can – this is really hard. Okay, I'm going to put it number two and God rest my soul. No, what's that thing? God, God help me. God help – heaven help me. May God have mercy on your soul. May God have mercy on my soul. That's the phrase I was looking for. Thank you, Stu. You always know <laughs> words to put in my mouth when I do not. So there we go. Oh, man. This is – Wow. So your, So my number three, your number two. And yet I still feel really weird about it. But I think I think I need to shake myself up and go, no, shake up that top three. Shake up that top three. Because it's mm. been the same since since Goldfinger, it's been the same. That was exciting to me. It's like, oh, actually, I, I've got a movie that I could I, that I can justify putting in my top three. Yeah, so I'm going to shake it up and I'm going to put it number two. Wow, that's awesome. And the die is cast, the Rubicon has been crossed, which <laughs> coincidentally, same event sparked both uh, phrases. Of course. Go. Yeah. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he said the die is cast. Yes. So that's that's a cool history thing that I know, but it sounds like you already knew it. So um, <laughs> <sighs> that was pointless. Um, okay. We've been recording a long time. Fun movie. It's always on TV. I'll, if it comes on, I'll always end up watching it. So Absolutely. I think that probably means I should just have it at number two and be done with it because I know that there are more coming up that are going to go above it so absolutely there, there are movies coming up that will go above it there, there are even movies coming up that may take the number one spot who knows yes so it's all about for me it's just that tension of going shit I really should keep from Russia with love up there because everyone always says it's really good but I think I think I'll have to start splitting out Dr. Noen from Russia with love at some point <laughs> but I feel bad about putting from Russia with love lower than Dr. No now, even though at the time I was totally justified in my mind. But now I'm like, oh. You but still are. That, that's the beauty of it. Like, like, this is your list. I have a list and you have a list. I know. And they're, and they're I, actually very different. Aside from we, we both have Goldfinger at number one. But other than that, the, the lists are very different. Like, everything is in a different spot, I think. Except for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, we both have it at, like, number four or number five now. We'll be number five now, yeah. Yeah. 
So, but you're right. There's enough movement to make it interesting. And as Nick said last week, come back in a week, it probably will be different. <laughs> but yeah, this is a fun, this is a fun experiment. I'm enjoying doing the graph every week. If you go on to um, nataliebohensky.com and check out the written recaps, um, you'll see at the end of each post I'm putting up where Stu and I stand with our bond choices. I'm going to run out of room uh, <laughs> pretty soon, but we'll get there. <laughs> Yeah, it's, we're going to have to expand that graphic. but So next week is Live and Let Die. Very cool. I can't wait. But until then, Stu, like De Beers said in a piece of advertising that has conned many people with parting from <laughs> with good money for diamonds that are not worth what they're really worth. Because no, they're not. The, the price of diamonds is artificially inflated and that's, the way they get them is terrible. That's right. So don't buy diamonds. Buy fake diamonds that are made in a lab, but they're exactly the same thing and way cheaper. Or buy, like, cubic zirconias because fuck it. Or, well, as long as they're sustainably <laughs> sourced because you don't want to go, you know, murdering children for – go watch the movie Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio doing a Zimbabwean <laughs> accent. And that'll teach you everything you need to know. <laughs> this diamond is my ticket out of here. <laughs> <laughs> my fr- my fr- a bunch of friends and I would say that to each other just randomly for years. <laughs> that that was that was in all the trailers for that movie, and it was just the most hilarious thing to us. It still is. I find that line hilarious, and I don't know why. Say it again. This diamond is my ticket out of here. Amazing. <laughs> the line that I remember from that movie, because it, I think that movie came out like maybe 2006 or seven or something. Yeah. And I remember it being, you know, this is like post Afghanistan, Iraq war kind of thing. And I just remember laughing because the line, you know, this, this film about blood diamonds and the toll they take mm. on African countries and it's horrible and children are exploited and people die and it's awful. And at one point this like old man, says, you know, what's all this for? And this guy says, oh, it's diamonds. And this guy goes, bloody hell, God, can you imagine what would happen if, thank God we don't have oil here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this fantastic kind of embittered. Pretty good, pretty good line. You know, pragmatic line of like, oh, well, I'm glad we don't have oil. <laughs> and things get really bad. But yes. Oh, and this movie, the diamonds weren't from South Africa initially. They were from Sierra Leone in the book mm. of Diamonds Are Forever. They're not from oh, okay, South right. Yeah. And of course, Kanye did uh, a cover or a sample of Diamonds Are Forever in Diamonds Are of Sierra Leone. Okay. And I'd play that, except it's Kanye, and I don't know what we sort of feel about Kanye. <laughs> Culturally, he's in a very strange place. I, yeah, I, I mean, like he's a very talented rapper, but also that whole Trump thing. What's going on? So instead, let's sing ourselves out with <laughs> once more in her second appearance doing a Bond title Diamonds song. Forever, it's Shirley Bassey. Forever, and as we always say, I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. Forever, forever, forever. I'm going to try and hold the line. They did it to it twice.